Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Seth Stevens Davidowitz. So, Seth, you have some fascinating data about what industries create the most millionaires, and yeah. they were kind of surprising. Like, and I, I guess you got this data from the IRS, but they list which industries basically mint the most millionaires like what what was the data that they so, I guess? so this is a study uh two of my it was a study done by professor chicago or actually two friends of mine uh based on irs data where they analyzed basically all american taxpayers and they're like who is it in the top one percent or even point one percent so uh i read this of course the study because it's an academic study is published in the quarterly journal of uh, economics uh, it had all these like theoretical models and it was trying to make a point about capital and labor and all these like weird things that, but there was one sentence in the study where they say the typical rich American is the owner of a regional business, such as an auto dealership or beverage distribution company. And like I read in, in, in writing, don't trust your gut. I read probably a thousand studies and literally most studies I read, I just don't believe I'm like, yeah, that, that's not true. Or it makes some really subtle point where I'm just like, it, it, that's not interesting. It's not changing how I view the world. Right. But then you read a study like the typical rich American is the owner of a regional business, business such as an auto dealership or beverage distribution company. And you know, it's based on the first study done two years ago from the entire universe of American taxpayers. And you're like, oh, wow, that's really, really interesting. Uh, I did not think that auto dealerships were a path to getting rich. And I didn't think that, I, I didn't know what a beverage distribution company was. Uh, so... And, and then I, I did analysis. So I talked to Eric Zwick, who wrote the paper, and he had this whole appendix. Uh, it's always, the juicy stuff is always in the appendix. <laughs> so he had an online appendix, mm -hmm. and like the, the chart 18 was like, these are the businesses that are making people rich. And then I compared that with actual census data on how many people start businesses in all these fields. And it turns out there are only a small number of fields uh, that are making people rich. And some of them are things like we expect. Uh, so like real estate and investing. Like, okay, you, we kind of knew that real estate and investing are great paths to money, and there are just tons of people getting rich, uh, running hedge funds, uh, running real estate businesses. Like, yeah, if you didn't know that, like, uh, now you know uh, real estate investing are, are great businesses. But then uh, auto dealerships were just, like, amazing, amazing business. I didn't even know. It turns out they have basically legal protections that, like, give them some, like, great situation to be in. And then uh, certain things, like, uh, middlemen do really well. And uh, market researchers, that was the one. So auto dealerships, you can't really use this data to start an auto dealership because one of the reasons auto dealerships are great businesses, it's really hard, hard to start a new auto dealership. Is it really? Yeah, there's, they're basically exclusive. You it can exclusively service uh, a car company in a region. So it's very hard to just, uh, and it's very hard for the car companies themselves to start their own business there. But does auto dealership include like used car dealerships? 
those might be easier, but I'm pretty sure those are not the ones getting people rich. Uh, the ones that are getting people rich are these ones where they're exclusively servicing like the Toyota dealership in your region. Okay. Cause then you're like the only, you're the one people have to go to. Uh, so that's a great place yeah. to be in a business where it's like you, they have to go to you. I, I talked to some research and I'm like, why are auto dealerships such good businesses? And like some professors were just like furious. Like it's a, it's a monopoly. It's the worst business in the world. They're like, they're like angry about this or whatever. I'm like, I, I don't even care. I just want to know what it is, like why it's such a good business. Uh, but then market research like turns out to also be a great business. I think you did a blog, blog post. Maybe that's where I got this idea that uh, how much better market research is than consulting. Because uh, consulting, you're selling your yeah. hours and market right. research, you're scaling. You're, so you can, so if, if you want to be a consultant, uh, you have to like work one-on-one with a uh, client. You charge a certain amount of hours. You're only getting paid for your hours. But if you like have some insight about a business uh, or an industry and write it up, you can sell that to everybody and it scales, right? So you don't have to just sell it to one company. You're, you're, you're basically no longer being paid by the hour. You're no longer being paid for your time. You're being paid for your insight. Uh, and that turns out to be, it seems in the data, really, really good business. You know, you should do a market research newsletter. <laughs> like well, go, uh, go to substack.com and start a newsletter. I probably, I had this section in my book, it's called Makeover Nerd Edition, uh, where I basically figure out the best version yeah. of myself using data anal- analysis. So, you know, we talked about how I'm not necessarily a 10 in physical appearance. Uh, I, I did a data analysis where I created a hundred different versions of myself using this face app thing. It's, it's really cool. You can, uh, there are all these apps now where you can just use AI to be like, what would I look like with a beard, without a beard, with glasses, without glasses, uh, shaved head, no shaved head, long hair, pink hair, glasses, like all these things. And I, I did a data analysis where I basically just surveyed people with all these different versions of myself and say, you know, how do I rate, rate me one to 10. And it turns out like I wildly vary based on little things about me. So adding a beard and adding glasses, which I don't have now because I'm looking closely at the screen, but I don't see well far away, but adding glasses and a beard like wildly improves how people perceive me. Uh, And based on that, I was talking to Stephen Levitt, the co-author of Freakonomics on his podcast, and he's like, that's your business and it's a market research business. Uh, like a market research on how people can look better, uh, and boom, <laughs> you 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 now you're, you'll be one of the new secretly rich people in the United States. Yeah, I mean, you you have so much data about so many things. Like, it doesn't have to be limited to how do you look better, but all this stuff you're saying and all the stuff in your book, like for instance, telling people not to start a laundromat, try to start an auto dealership instead. Like, if you're going to start a boring business. Do an auto dealership. Don't do a laundromat. Like, yeah, what, what are yeah. so, so? You have here the big six: real estate investing, auto dealerships, independent creatives, market research, and middlemen. But like middlemen, it's hard to figure out how to get into that kind of business either. That's like okay, somebody like a real estate broker is a middleman to some extent. Like somebody who wants to do a deal, another person wants to be the other side of that deal, and a middleman matches them and takes a fee. That is a very successful way to make money, but it's kind of a hard thing to to get into. But like, what's an industry that mints a lot of millionaires? Well, market research is probably the industry that mints a lot of millionaires. Independent creative is an interesting one. uh, Because if you say try to be like a rock and roll star, an actor, an actress, that's like the number one stupid advice you can give people. Everyone's like, don't do that. Like, 
you're, you know, everyone moves to LA trying to be an actor and actress and uh, it's never, it, it never works out. And it's like, it's, it's just like a disaster. I do think there are some ways you can be like a micro celebrity that maybe, particularly in this new age we're living of being an influencer, uh, that may not be as stupid a bet as you, as people sometimes think in part, because it ha it's being a micro celebrity, great businesses create lots of local monopolies. So like auto dealerships are a great example. Like everyone's like a local monopoly servicing their industry and their, uh, their car, their car company in their region. And, uh, independent creatives kind of have this phenomenon where you kind of build your little fan base. Like you kind of done this, James, you have your fan base of people who are interested in the types of things that you do. And like, they're really likely to listen to your podcast, to buy your books, to, uh, do all, to, to follow your, you know, read a newsletter if you write it. But then, and then the other thing about independent creatives is the studies have found that you just massively increase your odds by hustling. So like, if you're trying to be an independent creative, a, a Mike, an influencer, a celebrity, and your strategy is I'm just going to sit at home and like write some songs and put them on the web and hope the world finds me like that is an idiotic approach. Sorry, that's, that's too strong, but that is a horrible approach to trying to get rich. Like it's never going to happen. The world's not looking for its next, uh, you know, musician, like no, uh, great painter, great, whatever, uh, great, uh, celebrity. But if you actually hustle, if you're willing to hustle, then you're dramatically increase your odds. There've actually been studies where they've, analyzed data from 400,000, more than 400,000 painters. And they said, okay, what predicts success if you're a painter? And you can increase your odds of being a successful painter by about sixfold just by presenting to a wide range of galleries. So like the painters who don't make it, they present to the same gallery over and over again, and they just like hope that someone finds them and it never works. And the painters who do make it, they like, uh, they, they present their work everywhere. And eventually what always turns up in the data is they show up at some gallery that they least expect it. And the gallery gives them a good break. And then they like explode on the scene. So if you're going to do that, if you're trying to be an independent creative and you're young and you're like hustling and going to this place, that place, every meeting, a uh, meeting, anybody that can give you a break. Then I say, it's not as crazy a bet as you might think. Uh, like the data even suggests like that's actually not as crazy as, as, as you might think, as I might've thought, uh, like, like being aggressive, I guess, you know, that in, in your own experience, I know that in, in some degree in my, in my life, like, uh, I actually, this catch by people by surprise. I was working at Google. I actually got a raise since I quit Google to be like an independent creative, uh, which, you know, again, it, it's uncommon. I'm not saying that's like, I, I got really lucky in many ways and I'm not like, uh, saying anybody who has a, you know, has a job, has a job working for some company, just, uh, you know, write some novel and you're going to be, uh, get, make more money. But there was during this process, I was hustling like crazy, trying to find breaks and getting my ideas out there and doing these studies and talking about these studies and going anywhere with, uh, you know, somebody would hear me and meeting people. And eventually it led to this, uh, book deal and speaking opportunities and all these things that ended up, uh, I, I was making more money than my salary at Google uh, from an independent creative life. That's how we met. Like I was just sitting yeah, in a bookstore yeah. and you come right up to me and yeah. say, oh, I should no, go on your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and that's another area. It's kind of like uh, asking out beautiful people where it goes completely against my instinct. Uh, so there's nothing I want to do 
less than reach out to James Altucher and be like, let's meet. I want to talk to you. Uh, I, I'm a fan of yours and I have this cool new book and I want you to learn about it. Uh, like that's the equivalent for me of asking out, uh, you know, a, a supermodel. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's goes against my entire instinct. All I want to do is lie in bed and not talk to anybody, but I forced myself to do it like relentlessly and aggressively. And it did lead to these, you know, good returns. And now, uh, and, and, and it also goes to the point. So one of the things I, I point out in the book is that the value of being an owner versus an employee, that if you look at the richest Americans, the ratio of owners to employees is about three to one. So I think a lot of people, when you're growing up, you think I got to work at Google or I got to work at, uh, you know, not criticize Google. The salaries also are really good, just not top 1% or top 0.1% necessarily. But, you know, I need to get a job at one of these blue chip firms. And though, definitely some people working at those blue chip firms uh, are making a lot of money. Uh, but they're kind of swamped in the data by these people who own their own businesses, uh, which kind of now I do. And I guess you do as well, uh, where it's kind of a business of you. <laughs> Yeah, which is a which is a legit business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a business where I just tell people what I did while I was single and then offer advice. <laughs> I like your list: the sexy path to quick failure. And so yeah, these yeah. are the the businesses that fail basically the fastest: record stores, amusement arcades, which kind of surprised me actually because that's just like a passive business. You just buy a bunch of machines and people put quarters in and dollars in and and you collect the money at the end of the month. I think it's just well, anytime there's a sexy business, so many people want to do it that it's just like how many like so record stores, the number one worst business uh, in the United States of America. And it's like how that many people sense. watch? Yeah, watch a movie like I, I'd like to see this like the, there was some movie uh, about people owning a record store. I forget what it was. High, was it High Fidelity? Yeah, there was High Fidelity. Uh, and then um, is that there's one with. John Cusack, and there's one with yeah, Renee Zellweger. Yeah, there, and I bet you after that movie comes out, how many people like start a record business? Like probably so many people are like, this is the dream, I'm gonna start a record business. And like anytime there's a movie about it, it's probably not a good path to wealth uh, because, uh, you know, like so many people try to follow uh, what they hear, uh, see in movies. And the point is, uh, if you're running an auto dealership, nobody's gonna make a movie about you. And if you're running a record store, people are going to make a movie about you. So going like a, probably a good life hack is do thing. Don't do anything that they made a movie about. Uh, you know, th another example of that is there have been studies that after the social network came out, the movie about Mark Zuckerberg, uh, there was a big rise in teenagers starting companies. Because everyone saw this movie about Mark Zuckerberg starting social network and like, oh, I don't want to go to class, you know, go to my go to go to my college class and do the same thing everybody else wants to do. Like, why not just start a new you know, social media company or dating site and become a billionaire? That seems more fun. And it turns out in the data that 20 year olds make horrific business people. Uh, yeah, like, this was this was fascinating in your data, actually. And this is counterintuitive. But be, or it's counter counterintuitive. Basically, you determined that the older you are, up to a certain age, I think it was like sixty, the more likely you are to have success in in a business. 
And the more experience you have in that industry, <laughs> the more likely you are to succeed, as opposed yeah, yeah. to the, 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 the notion that, oh, the outsider has a bigger chance. Yeah, and that's another example where the problem is that these counterexamples are too exciting for people. It's like an 18-year-old making a business, starting a, a media empire like Zuckerberg did about 19, is so exciting, makes such a good story, is featured in movies, and then people just lose track of how common this is and make bad decisions based on these movies. Uh, so, like, you have to, you have, like, yeah. Uh, anytime you watch a movie and are thinking of making a decision based on it, uh, I hope you'll read Don't Trust Your Gut instead or read the studies that it's based on or uh, look for data yourself and actually see how common these things are. Uh, because frequently these things in movies are just, uh, they're one off, they're, they're made, they're made into movies because they're so uncommon, uh, and they're not good, good bets. Uh, so don't try to be the next Mark Zuckerberg, try to be the next, you know, middleman or market researcher or, or, you know, other person doing something really boring, you know, start, start as an employee and then branch out, uh, in middle age. What, why is beverage, why is beverage distribution, uh, high up on the list? There are some legal of, of businesses. There are some legal protections there. There's also there's like a three tiered system after prohibition that kind of determines who's able to distribute beer. So Heineken, for example, can't distribute their beer themselves, uh, and it does kind of uh, keep some of this, uh, ha have some of this, uh, allow people to not have the ruthless competition. So, so the thing about business, you start a laundromat. As good as it, it is to be an owner of a business, like. A lot of businesses make no money because you're just in perfect competition. So you start a laundromat and then uh, you're making a little money. Well, there's nothing to stop the person down the street from starting another laundromat and stealing all your profit. Uh, and this happens in businesses all the time uh, where you're you're basically just stuck in. You have to charge the lowest price to get customers. And then, uh, you know, and then you're not making money. Gas stations are another example. I grew up in a town and it had one gas station. And he was making a lot of money. And then someone realized he was making a lot of money and he opened a gas station right next to him. And then they just kept on lowering prices like every week. And they're just like competing, like running their flags. I have lower gas prices. I have lower gas prices. And it's like they weren't, if anyone had a little profit, the other one would just lower the price until that profit went away. Uh, so you got to be like really careful. How are you going to avoid uh, someone just, you know, knocking you down on price? Uh, and, you know, like that's why when I say independent creative may not be as bad as you think like independent creatives have brands. So like you could like you or I, at this point, we have a, at least a little fan base. Like we could write a book already. Our fans are going to like it just because it's us uh, and are going to be willing to buy it or, you know, start a podcast. Uh, and that's really advantageous in business where like if some guy down the street, uh, you know, if someone else is like, I'm going to start a show and I'm going to talk about the same things that James Altucher talks about. Uh, and I'm going to have Seth to discuss his book and I'm going to have Jay, the engineer, and I'm going to have all these things. Well, you've built over many years, a fan base that's going to listen to your show instead of their show. I hope so. You hope, <laughs> and you know, so, so, uh, so, you know, you do have this way to kind of escape price competition. I think everybody, when they start their business, you really got to ask yourself, uh, how are you going to avoid price competition? You need something, you need a law, you need a sc scaling it. You need like deep contacts. You need a fan base. You need something to avoid uh, the laundromat problem or the gas station problem or these other problems where you know, the pest control, pest control is another one. 
like a horrible business because uh, every, there's nothing you can do that's going to separate you in the pest control business. So you're all, any profits you go are going to go to like Google advertising to get a higher pest control, higher on the pest control uh, results. Because anyone who picks a pest control person is just going to pick whoever comes first there and charge, makes, gives them the best offer. So there's nothing that allows you to stand out in that business. Uh, so, well, you know, but there, there, there is always a component of luck to success. And you have a chapter about essentially the statistics of luck, particularly as it pertains to artists, for instance. So, and, and it's related to your point earlier about hustling that basically if, if, and, and this is also related to the, the discussion about this dating, if you basically put out a large quantity of work, you're much more likely to yeah. succeed. So like, it's it, like the one hit wonder is, is relatively rare as my guess. Well, even if the one hit wonder is rare, it may be one oh, hit wonder, a large quantity but they may work. have, yeah, they've made 200 hit, uh, songs and only one of them was a hit. And there've been all these studies of art where they've just found this incredible correlation that between how much quantity an artist produced and like measures of success. Yeah. Like you, you wrote that, uh, Beethoven wrote more than 600 pieces. Bob Dylan wrote more than 500 songs. Pablo Picasso uh, released more than 1,800 paintings and 12,000 drawings. Isaac Asimov wrote over 500 books. And one of the things that's interesting, they've done these studies that it's very hard for the artists themselves to predict which of their pieces is going to be judged a masterpiece. So I think like Beethoven, uh, something like nine of his uh, masterpieces at the time, there are letters where he's saying, this is the dumbest thing I've ever produced. I don't even want to produce it. There are also these stories, artists literally right before their work com came out, wanted not to put it out in the world. So I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. I have all kinds of references to Bruce Springsteen. And when he put out, completed the album Born to Run, now judged one of the greatest albums of all time, he begged his manager not to put it out, not to release it. He's like, this is garbage. I'm humiliating myself. I've embarrassed myself. And then the world is well, like- What do you think it is? I mean, the song Born to Run is an instant classic, right? So what, yeah. what did he think he heard that- the rest of us didn't hear it at that point. I think you're probably so close to it that it's like hard to see it accurately. Uh, like he probably heard, you know, when you hear a song like 300 times, you legitimately get bored of it. And you kind of like, you're like, oh, you know, I kind of get it already. I, the chorus is kind of boring you. So any artist is in that position automatically. Uh, so they, they don't hear it with fresh eyes and how surprising it is. I think also some things, you know, the rest of the world don't know. So I don't know. I definitely had this feeling with don't trust your gut. Uh, I would love if this turns into my born to run. I don't know if it is, but I was definitely going through periods where I'm like, I can't just like say this. The world is so obvious. Like a lot of the studies I'm talking to uh, talking about have already been written off. People are already going to know it. And I think, you know, I hope uh, people judge it uh, po more positively than I think. And I think one of the, th one of the reasons I may be too negative on my book, if I'm right that I'm too negative is that I've been swimming in this, these studies and this data for so so long that, you know, I don't realize that other people may not know these things already and may not have thought about them as much. It may be caught by surprise and may find it fresh and interesting. So uh, that, that is probably a no, problem. No, your, your book is fascinating. I probably already I was waiting. I was keeping talking, twice. hoping you, I was keeping no, talking, I, hoping <laughs> you're interrupting me. I was setting you up perfectly. And I was joking. <laughs> no, no, this was, this was great. Like this is like you say, this is the money ball for life. And we've only talked about uh, dating and business slash success slash luck.
but right, you have also the 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 chapter of the nerd makeover edition. You have stuff about parenting. You have stuff about sports and talent and all this stuff. Like, this was a, such a great read. I hope you write. I hope you do do a newsletter and have like new data insights every week. Like, I would pay for that. Like, I would pay twenty bucks a month for that at least. Okay, and while you're listening, and then I can bring her along. I'll, I have my little local monopoly of my fans, and I can steal your local monopoly of your fans. And <laughs> yeah, imagine if you got ten thousand subscribers paying twenty bucks a month just to see like this wild data that yeah. will improve my life. So this yeah. way, it, like you mentioned earlier, how um, oh, when someone sees a study on oh, you should stand next to a tiger and your online dating profile, then suddenly everyone's standing on tiger. Well. I want to get all the research first before everyone starts standing next to a tiger. <laughs> yes, and you want it to be a you, that that is how I can justify the high price. I'm like, if yeah. I made it cheap, then everybody would read it. But if I make it really expensive, only you'll read it, and you'll like know uh, what what really works. Uh, well, then you maybe you could have a premium edition. So twenty dollars a month is that's not expensive. That's a cheap price. Twenty dollars a month is the is your is your kind oh, of regular analysis. Maybe two thousand a month is a personalized one. So like research that I specifically need. I'm just, I'm just thinking like tight, like people stand near tiger, stand near a tiger. I was a tiger. What I was like, I write this book and more people read it than I expect. And everyone just starts dating like short men. And then all of a sudden now tall men are the underappreciated market. Cause everyone's going after everyone read, don't trust your God. And it's like, no, no, I need to focus on short men. Okay. Now, no, the, the advice is reversed. You got to focus on the six foot two men who now everyone's ignoring. Cause I think they're over uh, value. <laughs> So, so in that sense, happen. your book would change the world. And there's a, so, so you don't think it will happen, but there's a small micro chance it could happen, right? Yeah. So do you think it's always important that you do endeavors that you, that you at least think there might be a small chance the world could change? I mean, this book was literally trying to get people to make better decisions in ways like I, we haven't talked about, there are these two chapters on happiness. And like, I literally think people can make better decisions that are more likely to make them happy. Uh, and when I was writing this book, I'm like, if 10 people uh, get happier from writing this book, like forget about, you know, 10,000 people or 100,000 people, if 10 people get happier from reading this book, that would probably have more of an impact than lots of other things I could have done. Uh, and like, that's kind of an advantage of writing a book. So if I was like a therapist, like my life's work would be trying to make like, thir like, 30 people or hundred people happy, but maybe just by writing a chapter on happiness, you can make 30 or hundred people, or even if you get lucky, a thousand people, 10,000 people happier. So yeah, like I love, this is one of the last chapters. I love your chart, the happiness geography chart, because there's certain types of just locales that make people happier. So, uh, so the number one by a huge amount is marine and coastal margins. So yeah, if you, which if I had to Google because I'm, I'm such, so, so I have such bad vocabulary, but it's basically a lake. Uh, yes. Basically, if you live by an ocean, if you live right on the ocean or by water, you're going to be happier or it's, it, you're potentially going to be happier than you would have been otherwise. If you lived not near an ocean, if you lived yeah. landlocked. Yeah. And that's research by George McCarran and Susanna Murado. I want to make sure I'm giving credit to, to them, but yeah. Uh, yeah, you can keep going. So, so, and then, and you, you, you do all these things like does social media make us happier? And, uh, you know, your, your answer no. there, I'll, uh, right. No. So what about sports? Yeah, sports. This is a uh, George McCarron and, and Bryson. They found that when your team wins, you get four points of happiness. And when your team loses, you lose 10 points of happiness. So on average, the sports fan is making a terrible bet basically. 
unless you make a conscious decision, I'm, I love sports and I want to be happy. So I'm only going to support winning teams. No, that's what initially, that's how I initially interpreted this research. But when they dig into the data further, they're like, actually, if your team's good, it takes that much more to make uh, you happy. So like you just get less happiness from the win and more happiness from the losses. So basically you're screwed. But what does make people happy is actually watching sports if you don't care about the team's results. So basically the key to being a happy sports fan is just like liking the artistry of the teams. Just like, so if I, instead of watching another stupid Knicks game, because I'm a huge Knicks fan and I always watch the Knicks games and I always get upset, depressed. Like I just watch a, a Bucks game and just appreciate how good a player Giannis is or watch a, you know, a, a Nuggets game and appreciate how jo- good Jokic is and uh, not care so much about the result, which tends to make people miserable. But the thing is like, <laughs> When I read studies like this, I'm wondering if this is going to have an effect on people because most people, you read a study and like you go, that's interesting and like then do nothing about it. And I actually, I swear in my life, like I read this sports study and I just like stopped watching Knicks games. (laughs) And I'm like, literally, okay, this is making me miserable. I'm just stopping watching. Like, that's it. And like, I read that study. You said the happiness geography chart that people are happy near uh, basically water. I cannot tell you, I live in an apartment, I take all, near, near, uh, near water, I now take all my walks to the river. And I just like walk by the river, I'm like, okay, if the studies say, because when I read these studies, like I only include it if I'm like, this is actually a compelling, like the methodology makes sense. Uh, like I'm, I, I, I read, you know, a thousand studies, probably 950 of them didn't get over my threshold. And I just thought they were kind of bullshit. But like 50 of them, I'm just like, wow, that is totally convincing. And I just changed my life based on it. I actually took, I almost conclude the book because I say that the data-driven answer to life based on all these studies is uh, to be with your romantic partner on an 80 degree and sunny day overlooking a beautiful body of water having sex. Like those are the things that really make people happy consistently. And I was going to conclude my book with a picture because I literally closed my laptop having finished my manuscript. And I swear on my life, I took a beach vacation with my girlfriend after this. Uh, which is the exact data-driven thing you should do, a beach vacation uh, with your girlfriend. And I should have, it, it probably was a mistake, I should have just left, uh, ended the book with a picture <laughs> showing that I was following uh, the data-driven life advice. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. 
My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? <laughs> Yes, I definitely gonna use him from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? 
hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. You know, it's it's interesting because I've done about 1,200 or more of these podcasts where I'm always talking to people who are interesting and have done some research or some thought into or have stories about what makes their own lives better. And I try to always take at least one thing from each interview and apply it to my life. And I don't always do that. It's 1,200 people. But, uh, you know, I think what's interesting here what, for me is I feel like for, for 20 years, I had a huge amount of output, like, like the creatives you mentioned in the book. I, was, I wrote an article every day. So on my website, where people could see my old blog posts, I have something like uh, 5,000 articles that I've written, <laughs> like some enormous number of articles. And You're the Bob Dylan of uh, blogs. Of, of article writing. And, and, but I haven't done that lately because I've been doing other things, but... It made me think that I haven't been I haven't been hustling as much in the past couple of years, but that, maybe because I just don't want to. I don't know. I'm I'm more no, of the like, type like you, you said could earlier. Follow but, that advice, or you could follow the lie lie on the beach and do nothing advice. Uh, which yeah, also, I might I'm, I might be aiming towards that lately. <laughs> yeah. So because I did move from to, New York City to Key Biscayne, Florida, for a while, which is basically right on the ocean. Like yeah. everywhere, it's a small island, so everywhere you look, there's water. And it was great. It was oh, great. Manhattan's an island too. I know, but you don't really see the water in Manhattan. Yeah, Manhattan is an island, but you don't really feel like it's an island. It doesn't. And the feel water is like... so polluted that it kind of makes you depressed. If anything, just seeing that brown water. Yeah, that could be. But I never even really saw the water because the water is actually far to walk to, uh, unless you live in like all the way like on Eleventh Avenue or yeah. you know yeah. some really west or east road, which is which is uh, not usual. Um, yeah. but there, there was, there was a lot of interesting data in here. I like also the data on, you know, polarizing, you know, be yourself, but be as much of yourself as you can. And yeah. you're going to have haters, but you're going to have more intense likers. And as someone who's definitely experienced a lot of haters, it, sort of, it kind of helps explain that a little bit, but, um, I think the being yeah, yourself and I think the being yourself and the prolific output, they complement each other. Like they work together. Yeah. If you well, do them both, then you're, I, it's like being an extreme version of yourself and asking a lot of people out or being an extreme, extreme version of yourself as a, in your creative output and putting a lot of it out there. That's the real best way to do it. And the thing is you hear from the haters more or people have lost a version, right? So like you said, with the sports events, people hate their team to lose more than they like their team to win. So you just have to be able to handle loss aversion or rejection. You have to do rejection therapy. So you have to be able to handle these things if you're going to do these things, these items for success, but which is why maybe the, you know, sex on a beach is a, is a, a more reliable path to happiness. <laughs> so as opposed to success or competition or whatever. So, but, but there's so much valuable advice. I feel like we only touched a, a, a small percentage of it. You know, don't trust your gut, 
using data to get what you really want in life by Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Let me ask you a question in terms of like the money. This, so this is money bought for life with, uh, for one's personal life, which again, I a hundred percent think you should do a four pay newsletter about, I wanted to ask you specifically about Moneyball. So baseball, this is this very discreet thing. So like there's hits, there's home runs, there's walks, there's catches, there's errors, there's pitches. Like you could count on two hands, the number of pieces of data you could measure, but like a sport like basketball, for instance, there's a lot more data. There's the, the arc of the ball as you're trying to put it in the hoop. If you know, there's, there's a lot more data basically. Do you think Moneyball is applicable in every sport? Yeah, I think it's basically as data gets better. So baseball was first for a reason. It's the reason you say that it's kind of a one-off thing, one pitcher, one batter. It's much easier to study. And uh, play games that rely a lot on you know players interacting together, uh, soccer, football, basketball have been harder. There were some insights. So I was literally an undergrad and I took a class mathematics of sports and my professor just would not stop talking about how basketball teams should take more three pointers. And this was 2003 and I'd never heard that idea. Mm. Nobody was talking about it, uh, but it was clearly, it was like one line of algebra that he proved it. And now uh, that, that's, been, and now that's like a huge revolution that basketball teams just take way more three pointers because the data is clear that three pointers are more valuable, but then there are just much more advanced things that just the like as they have videos that track every shot, you can turn, you can learn more about the track tra uh, sh shot trajectories. I even said they've, they've done these studies where they found that the average NBA player is more likely when he's shooting a three pointer from the side of the court, he's more likely to miss away from the backboard. Cause he's like too afraid of hitting the backboard. Cause it's so embarrassing. Uh, and like they told NBA players and NBA players have kind of corrected this little bias and that couldn't have been done. Uh, 20 years ago is this new technology that can track shots. And uh, even basketball, they've gotten a lot better at understanding like players. A, a big thing about basketball is you get judged based on your stats. So scoring a lot of points, having a lot of rebounds, uh, you know, stealing the ball a lot, blocking a shot. And that's only a small percent of what players do. And there are lots of players that have been undervalued because they make the other players better in ways that don't show up the box score. And as they're yeah, like, do they measure data, passes? What? Like, do the do a player's stats measure passes? How many times the player passed? They have assists, but it's only if the if that lead directly causes a basket. But some passes just like lead to another pass, and then you don't get a reward for that. And data scientists a, a bunch of years ago they did like really complex regression analysis, and they found that all these players uh, just things went better when they were on the court. So Chris Paul, for example. Uh, he had great stats and he was considered a great player, but he was even better than the stats showed because uh, just the team just did better when he was on the court. Uh, so, so basically as you get, uh, as data gets more advanced, our ability to understand data, uh, we're learning, we're, we're even these sports that initially aren't as data driven uh, are becoming more data driven. And like, sometimes it's the interaction, uh, like they found in the, in the NFL that it's best to uh, have great cornerbacks and not great linemen and then just blitz every play, the quarterback, every play, like it's a very subtle strategy that it's not as obvious as just players who walk a lot are undervalued as the first data insights are coming, but they're more like machine learning models 
uh, that simulate various things, but I think that they're also leading to uh, revolutionary insights. Should 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 football teams go for fourth downs more uh, than they do? Like they on a fourth down, they usually go for field goals. Yeah, so that was another one where it was a clear data. There was a study in the journal of Political Economy probably uh, twenty years ago, uh, where a mathematician David Romer just proved without a shadow of the doubt that teams weren't going for it on fourth down nearly enough. And there has been an adjustment; teams are going for it on fourth down more but they're still probably not going for it as much as the data says they should. Mm. Like, and punting's a horrible, punting's just way worse than people think. Uh, so see yeah. if you did, if you did this kind of research also, by the way, football teams, basketball teams, hockey teams, they'll pay a lot of money to, to have exclusive use of your data. You should, uh, there's so many opportunities for you. Like yeah. in the, in the hedge fund world, finance world, everybody's inundated with data. Like it's been done. Like quantitative finance is an entire industry. But Moneyball, despite the fact that that book was out 20 years ago, it hasn't even begun in sports, I feel. Like, yes, baseball, you know, maybe football a little bit, but it's not really anywhere else. I think it's, I yeah, I think it's it's coming to others. But, oh, there, there have been, every once in a while, someone writes a convincing study uh, that like shows the teams are just doing something wrong and usually ignore it. So another one is that hockey teams should pull their goalie way earlier than they do. So like a hockey team's losing by one goal or two goals late, uh, eventually they'll pull their goalie with the idea that this will make it more likely that someone scores on us. But if they score, again, who cares? We're already losing, but this will give us a chance to score ourselves. And when you do the math, it seems like they start pulling their goalies with like one minute or two minutes left in the game. And it seems like it should be more with seven minutes, eight minutes left in the game. Uh, but they, I think hockey teams basically just haven't made any changes based on this. It's interesting. And I wonder with like tennis, like if you could measure like where you should aim your serve to most likely have an ace. I mean, they probably do measure stuff like that, but. Golf. Uh, yeah. Golf is another one where amateurs, like amateurs, the big mistake people make is they think they're way better than they actually are. So you can just dramatically improve your amateur. If you're an amateur player, you can dramatically improve your game by, uh, not like taking these ridiculous chances. So like, instead of trying to shoot, uh, like right at the pin, like go for a layup or, or, or if there's a lake, like if there's a, you know, a, a body of water, like, and the, and the pin is somewhat close to the body of water, shoot it way away from the body of water. Cause you're way more likely to mess up the shot than you realize. Uh, so being more conservative for amateurs is really helpful. And then also, uh, like assuming more break on their putts, like amateurs are are uh, imagine that the putt's going to break a lot less than it actually does. So assuming more curvature. So there's very clear biases in amateur golf games. The biases are less severe among professional golfers. Uh, but I'm sure like there's another area is just training. Like that's just the beginning. Like all these ideas, mm. you know, I have a chapter in my book, Makeover Nerd Edition, where I talk about how important it is what you look like. And shortly after reading this research, as I'm want to do, I made big change in my life, including hiring a personal trainer. And I love my personal trainer, John Ford. Everyone should hire him. He's as good a personal trainer as exists in New York City. Now he does uh, Zoom workouts, like, you know, hire this man. He's, he's amazing and he's smart. We talk about politics, philosophy, but I'm sometimes thinking like, how does he know that I should do 15 reps and then 12 reps, then 11 reps? And how does he know that I should do this exercise first and that exercise second and that exercise third? I'm like, 
there's no real science to this. Uh, it's kind of just ideas that have been conventional wisdom uh, that has traveled through uh, the grapevine of personal training and fitness. I think they know their own body so well. After years and years of studying the reaction and exercise to their own body, they apply that to others. But I don't think they've tried enough to know. I, I'll just tell you one example. Like I, like I had a personal trainer, this is like 20 years ago, and whenever he was going on vacation, let's say he was going on a vacation to Jamaica, he, he knew exactly what he needed to do to his diet and what exercise to do because he knew which muscles were more attractive in certain situations when they kind of bulged out. And so he would focus on like those specific parts of his body and he changed his diet and his exercise regimen and everything. So he wasn't just going for health. He was going for, for to, to slightly tweak his looks at those moments. Okay. But the lesson of Moneyball is you had all these managers who had spent a lifetime around baseball and they mm, thought true. they knew what it made a good player. They thought they knew whether they should bunt, whether they should steal, uh, whether they should, you know, draft this player or that player. And the evidence is overwhelming that there was massive improvements to be had, that there were massive improvements to be had by uh, analyzing data instead. So I'd be very suspicious that there, not that there's no information in uh, that they've picked up over the years, but that there aren't, I, I'm skeptical that there aren't massive yeah, improvements right. to be had by uh, improving, by uh, using data analysis. I also could use data analysis on how to fight hiccups because I, I get hiccups all the time now. Uh, so if anybody, any listener can tell me any good study on fighting hiccups, I'd really appreciate it. Well, Seth, you're going to find it out yourself because I insist that you set up a newsletter so I can read it every week. I'm obsessed with this stuff and I want to hear everything you have to say. You're just going to have to do a lot more work on data analysis. And I think, as you mentioned, market research is the way to make millions of dollars. So you should just go and do it. I'm serious. And I'll, 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 I'm your first subscriber. And then you come on every couple of weeks and talk about the latest data you've discovered. I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to, James. So I can't highly recommend this enough. Don't Trust Your Gut by Seth Stevens Davidowitz, best-selling author, New York Times best-selling author of Everybody Lies, which also is a great book, which we talked about in a prior podcast. Seth, thank you so much for coming on and definitely come on anytime. You re if you read even one single new research report that's interesting, let me know and come back on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, James. And will do. Excellent. 